0: Well, we're beginning a, a short four-week series on this theme, uh, beginning with Moses seeing Christ in all the scriptures, and this a four-week series on Sunday mornings kind of runs parallel to the uh, the three weeks of the big picture on Friday evenings. Uh, on Fridays, we'll be looking at the. Story beginning with Moses, uh, meaning the, the books of Moses, so the book of Genesis, and seeing the whole story from Genesis through to Revelation. And as we take that journey through the whole story of the Bible, uh, we will be seeing Christ uh, as we go along in various ways. And so on Sunday mornings, uh, we will be going into a little bit more of more depth with that and in a sense it will be uh, a little bit of a, a training uh, if you've read the Old Testament and maybe sometimes struggled to think what's what's this all about, what's the point of this, what's the, the reason for all of these stories, all of this history. Uh, Jesus explained it to his disciples that the prophets... The law, the Psalms all speak of Him. Uh, So as we go through this series, hopefully we will uh, begin to see how we can recognise Christ as His presence through all of the scriptures. Now, when the women went to the tomb early on Easter Sunday, they were told by the angels, uh, Why do you seek the living? among the dead. He's not here but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. This was just before the, the reading that we heard read. At this point, All these women have is an empty tomb, the miraculous experience of an angel and the memory of Jesus' words, his predictions about his own death and resurrection. Now soon after this both these women and the other disciples encountered the risen Jesus himself in person as we saw in our reading So then they add to the empty tomb and the memory of the words and the angel visitation, uh, Jesus himself, that experience in person. They could say, I know Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, because I've literally seen him risen from the dead. But what about those who came after them? Those who did not have that literal, physical encounter with Jesus, all they had was the claims of these disciples. In fact, this passage uh, is written by Luke. Luke himself was not an eyewitness, as far as we know, of Jesus during his ministry or of his death or of his resurrection. Uh, Luke wrote his Gospel not as an eyewitness himself, but as he spoke to many other eyewitnesses and heard what they said and then he wrote it down for us to read. It's really important for us to see that as the first disciples went out and began proclaiming the Gospel, they very rarely relied solely on their own testimony of seeing Jesus in order to convince people, in order to call people to repent and believe. As we see in the Gospels, even that eyewitness testimony is something that people can easily dismiss. They can write it off as a fabrication. They call you a liar. They say you were deluded. We know the soldiers who were at the tomb were paid to tell the story that the disciples came and they stole Jesus' body and many people believed that. So the disciples, the apostles' preaching was much more substantial than just the account of their experience. Throughout all that they said was infused... The Scriptures. Lost my spot in my notes here. Here we are. The Old Testament Scriptures. If you listen to the sermons in Acts, if you read the writings of uh, these uh, men in the New Testament, they're constantly quoting, constantly alluding to the Scriptures. They're showing that Jesus is the Messiah based on the combined witness of all the 39 books of the Law, the Prophets and the Psalms. And their own experience of Jesus' teaching and ministry was then spoken of as the fulfilment of all that has already been said. A fulfilment that actually depends on the last 2,000 years of history that had been written down in God's Word and a fulfilment that ties it all together and completes it. Even Jesus himself was dependent upon the Scriptures. He used the Scriptures when he was resisting temptation from the devil. He read the Scriptures when he was in the synagogue. He taught the scriptures in his sermons. He deliberately did and said things because he knew that the scriptures must be fulfilled by him. Even his final words on the cross before he died was a direct quotation of scripture. Psalm 31 verse 5, if you want to look it up. So if Jesus needed the scriptures to shape and define his identity and ministry, how much more do his disciples need it? So the disciples were enabled to proclaim the gospel of the risen Jesus, whom they'd personally encountered because they were also enabled to see Christ in all the scriptures. And we saw in our reading this morning how Jesus keeps pointing them back to the Scriptures. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Then later they said, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? They were amazed not that Jesus had appeared to them and broken bread, They were amazed because of their experience on the road of hearing the Scriptures being expounded. And then later, as he appeared to all of the disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written, meaning... This is the Scriptures, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So even their personal experience of the risen Jesus had to be interpreted through the Bible, the Scriptures. As they saw that he is spoken of, not just in some, but all of the Scriptures. Glenn Scrivener, uh, an Australian pastor who's working in the UK, uh, has put it in a helpful way, and I've got the quote there in the handout. Christ is at the heart of the Scriptures. He's patterned, promised, and present from Genesis onwards. We'll be using these three Ps, patterned, promised, present in this short series as we look at uh, a number of passages to see where we can see Christ in all of the Bible. So firstly, uh, I'll change the order a little bit from his quote. Uh, we'll begin with Jesus being promised. Because that's, maybe that's the part of Christ in the Scriptures that's easiest to identify Uh, Explicit promises that very clearly refer to Jesus. Throughout the unfolding story of the Bible, there's a growing expectation of the coming Messiah because of the promises that get more and more explicit as the story goes on. And this expectation had reached a high point by the time of the first century when Jesus came. These promises stand out as clear markers that show us the Father's plan, set in motion from before creation and he's been working out this plan through every stage of history. For example, just some of the highlights along the way, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. A clear promise here that it will be a descendant of Eve. It will be a human being who will undo all that was done by the devil. Then we have Abraham's offspring through whom the Lord will bring blessing to every family and nation on earth. Galatians 3, I've got up there, makes it clear that While there's a reference there to the nation of Israel, the promise is primarily about Jesus. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring and Paul makes a note here of the grammar that's there in the Old Testament account. It does not say and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Then we have the prophet who would come after Moses, who would be like Moses in Deuteronomy 18, to whom Israel must listen to every word that he speaks. Now this wasn't Joshua. Joshua succeeded Moses in a sense, but Joshua wasn't a prophet. Peter points out in Acts 3 verse 20, Uh, He speaks of the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Peter tells us that prophet is Jesus. Then we have the son of David. David's son who would build a house for the Lord and through whom the throne of David would be established forever. You can read that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now this wasn't Solomon, David's firstborn son, even though Solomon built a physical temple in Jerusalem. It was... Speaking of Jesus, people recognised him as the fulfilment of that promise when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Then we have the suffering servants we read of in Isaiah 52 and 53. This servant who would be pierced for the transgressions and bruised for the iniquity of his people before being raised up. Now many Jews considered this to be an image of their nation rather than of an individual but the New Testament writers say no, it's speaking of Jesus. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And then Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And here he quotes Isaiah, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Then we have the child who was to be born in Bethlehem. You see that in Micah chapter 5. This child will be a ruler in Israel and the Jewish leaders knew that this child would be the Messiah. We know this story, don't we? After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, meaning Micah, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. These are just some of the uh, big, more obvious promises through the Old Testament which we see becoming clearer and clearer, more and more explicit, more detailed with each one so that anyone who knew their Old Testament stories and watched Jesus and saw all that he said and did knew that he perfectly fitted the descriptions that the prophets have given. Secondly, we see Christ patterned in the Old Testament. Now we could say that the promises on their own would be enough for us to see and believe in Jesus as the Son of God, as the Saviour, as the Messiah. But these promises and the stories in which these promises come are all embedded uh, within these stories, which combine to make this one big unfolding stories. Uh, these stories are full of interesting, intriguing and sometimes shocking characters and plot lines and twists and turns, sometimes with predictable, sometimes unpredictable outcomes. These characters and their experiences, their interactions with one another, their interactions with God and the work that he's doing contain types and shadows that point beyond themselves to various aspects of God's saving work that would be completed in Jesus. Remember what Jesus said, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Now, that first clause, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead, is a clear reference there to the promise of the suffering servant that we just saw in Isaiah. But what about the next clause, that he will rise from the dead on the third day? Why the third day? There's no... Seemingly direct promise in the Old Testament that says the Messiah will rise on the third day. But Jesus insisted on it many times. He emphasised that it would be on the third day that he rose from the dead. Jesus isn't quoting an explicit promise about himself here, but he's drawing on the images that come from a number of Old Testament passages. This idea of a third day is a pattern that is repeated a number of times through the Bible. It was on the third day of creation that God separated the land from the sea and then caused the land to produce abundant life. And then on the sixth day of creation, you could call it the second third day, That was the day that he formed humanity from the dust and breathed into them the breath of life. When the Lord tested Abraham, when he called him to sacrifice Isaac on the mountain, it was on the third day that Abraham came to the mountain. It was on the third day that Isaac's life was spared by the Lord as the Lord provided a ram to be sacrificed in his place. Isaac was effectively raised from the dead on the third day. When the Israelites came out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, it was on the third day, day three after having crossed the Red Sea. It was on the third day that the Lord came down and made himself known on the mountain in the cloud. Hosea, who prophesied just before the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians, wrote these words, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. You've seen a pattern that's coming through these passages. Jesus himself spoke of what he called the sign of Jonah. He said an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The figurative death and resurrection of Jonah was a sign, a pattern pointing forward to the actual literal death and resurrection of Jesus. That's just one of many ways in which Jesus is patterned in the Old Testament. Thirdly, we see Jesus actually present in the Scriptures. And maybe this is can sometimes be the the hardest one to, to see. I think we're used to talking about God in the Old Testament as if he was just one person who then inexplicably split into three persons and became the Trinity in the New Testament. Or we think in terms of the ancient heresy of modalism. Modalism says that God is one person who manifested himself in three different ways. He was the Father in the Old Testament, He was the Son in the Gospels and then He was the Holy Spirit from Pentecost onwards. But God doesn't change between the Testaments. He is and always has been the Triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, three persons existing eternally as the one God of love. And that means that we often can discern the unique roles and distinctives of each person of the Trinity in different places in the Old Testament stories. A good way to understand this is to say that it's always the Father who initiates. He's the one who conceives and who sets in motion his plan. He is the one who sends the Son and the Spirit to carry out his plan. Then the Son is always the mediator between the Father and his creation. For example, Hebrews 1 verse 2 says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the Father speaks to us by his Son. The Son is the mediator of the Father's communication to us and it is through the Son that he created the world. So the Son's work as mediator didn't begin at his incarnation as a man. It has always been the case. He's always been on about doing his Father's will in creation. The Spirit's role in all of this is to bring the work of the Son as the Son does the Father's will. The Spirit brings the Son's work to completion, perfection. It's the Spirit who hovered over the unformed waters at creation and then brought the creation to completion as the Son who was the Word... Acted in obedience and response to the Father. He brought creation to its fulfilment, its completion, as He breathed the breath of life into Adam. And it's the Spirit who completes the work of salvation as He brings home to our hearts the work of Jesus, as He sanctifies us to make us a holy temp- temple in which all of the fullness of God can dwell so whenever we see the Lord making himself known to people in the Old Testament in some kind of uh, visible or even a physical form we should recognise that that's not just God in some vague generic sense but as the Son the second person of the Triune God who one day will become embodied physically in flesh and bone. So we have in the New Testament statements like Jude verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus the Son of was present and active both in rescuing the Israelites out of Egypt but also working out the father's discipline of his children during their desert wanderings. His presence there was not symbolic or figurative. His presence was real. Christ, the Son, was present in a special way. That's why throughout the story of the Scriptures all of those patterns and types and shadows keep appearing. They're like the Son's fingerprints all over this masterpiece that He is creating, that He's shaping as He's doing the Father's bidding, as He is preparing everything for the day when He will step into the story Himself and actually have literal, real fingerprints. So these three Ps, promised, patterned and present, they give us a lens through which we can read the Scriptures that will mean we'll always be asking as a first question, no matter what Old Testament passage we're reading, where is Christ in this passage? Is his coming promised in some way? Do I see a pattern or a type? of him in some aspect of the story or of a character in the story and do I actually see him present, living in a real way to the people in the story? This approach to reading the scriptures will save us from a a common but unhelpful and sometimes dishonouring way of reading the Bible what has been dubbed Narcissus. Now, we all know what a narcissist is, someone who's always focused on themselves. They're a person who's able to make every situation about them, who managed to always turn the conversation around to talking about themselves, who lives and speaks as if the world revolves around them. A Christian narcissist is the worst of all narcissists. Because they live as if God exists just to make them happy. But I've got news for us all. We're all narcissists. That's the essence of sin, isn't it? Focusing in on ourselves for our own glory instead of outwards for God's glory. I suggest that one reason that we find openly narcissistic people so annoying and offensive is because we don't like the way that the focus is being directed to them instead of to us because we would like to be the narcissist and have the attention on us. So that's narcissism. Narcissus is when in our sinful self-focus and our desire to make things about us, we automatically read ourselves into the Bible stories to see first and foremost what they can tell us about ourselves and then what we think it is that God's telling us to do so we can then justify ourselves by our works. Some uh, classic examples of this when we read the story of David and Goliath and we interpret it to be a story teaching us about how we can overcome the giants that we face in our lives or we read the story of Jonah fleeing from the Lord by getting on the ship to Tarshish, being swallowed by a, a fish and then being resent to Nineveh, we, we read that as a moral lesson on how we should be more obedient than Jonah was, that we should make sure we obey God's call the first time. Or we might read the story of Elijah on the mountain experiencing the wind and the fire and the earthquake and then the still small voice of God and we see it as a lesson for us on how we, how we also can hear the voice of God. See how we so easily make the Bible stories about ourselves instead of seeing that they're actually firstly about Jesus. It's only when we've seen how the scriptural stories and their prophecies find their completion and fulfilment in Jesus that we're able to then correctly apply them to ourselves, not not just as individuals, but also as we are together as the church, Jesus' bride. So never take an Old Testament story or passage and try to connect it directly to yourself without first going through the mediator, the son who is always the mediator between us and the father. Unless you approach the Bible through Jesus... You'll find that your narcigesis will only cultivate your sinful tendency towards narcissism. You'll begin relating to God as if he exists to make you happy. You'll see your glory less in what Christ has done in love and in grace for us and more in what you think you've been able to do for him and how good a job you feel you're doing at living out a good, godly, Christian life. There will certainly be times when it's appropriate to see ourselves in the Old Testament passages, but if we've seen Christ there first, then we will then see ourselves as we are supposed to, as recipients of his grace and mercy. So instead of seeing David as representing us in his fight against the giant Goliath, we'll see that actually we are the weak, trembling Israelites hiding behind a rock who need to be rescued from their great enemy by the Messiah King who's been anointed and appointed and sent by the Lord. Instead of seeing Jonah as representing us in going to Nineveh, we'll see ourselves as the Ninevites, those who need to hear the message of coming judgement and the call to repent and the salvation that will follow that. We need to hear that from the lips of a prophet who has passed through death and resurrection. Instead of seeing Elijah representing us as he stands on the mountain hearing God's call to prophesy, we will see that actually we are the people of Israel, the people who need to hear the word from a prophet like Moses. Elijah was on Mount Sinai. He was like Moses. He was in a cave in the rock and the Lord passed by just like Moses. We are the people of Israel who need to hear a word from that prophet. We need to hear the word of our coming deliverance from an evil oppressive king and all of his idols. So over the next three weeks, we'll be looking at a number of Old Testament passages to see how wonderfully rich they are when we actually look to see Christ in them, when we see how he is promised, how he is patterned, and how he is actually present. Let's pray.